Hello and a very warm welcome to the gardening podcast that's for everyone who wants to enjoy growing their own flowers, fruits and vegetables. I'm Dan. And I'm Julia. And together we're Two Good Gardeners. We're an all-inclusive podcast, so whether your garden is big or small, north or south, sunny or shady, we are here to share our gardening know-how and great ideas that you can try at home. We upload a new episode every fortnight, packed with news, timely tips and the occasional interview with gardeners we admire. We know you're busy people, so we like to keep things short and sweet. Think of this podcast as a bento box of delicious goodies to be consumed with gusto. Now we've whetted your appetite, let's crack on with episode 7, sponsored by Alatex, home of the modern Victorian greenhouse, designed in the UK for over 70 years and built worldwide. So welcome back to Two Good Gardeners. It's been a whole four weeks since our last full-length episode and we're so thrilled to be back in the studio sharing our love of growing with you. This episode's going to be jam-packed with news and helpful tips, but before we get started, how are you coping with the Chelsea come down, Julia? Well, thanks for asking. It's been a quieter week for sure and I have finally come down off my Chelsea slash Alatex high. It definitely is a hard one to beat. It's quite addictive being up at the show, being involved that way. But what a week we had. And for those of you who have not paid attention or even missed episode six of the Chelsea Flower Show spam, the Alatex stand was awarded five gold stars. And then the RHS surprised us on Tuesday when they handed out the Best Trade Stand Award. Honestly, it was the loveliest of surprises and I'm so pleased for Nelly and the team who worked so hard, not only the week before, setting up the stand, but for months of the plotting and planning. All the props now are safely stored away back at HQ. Some have been harvested, some plants have been planted and the rest are going to reappear at the Hampton Court Flower Show. So if you're going to that, you'll see them there. And the Chelsea site was actually cleared by the Wednesday, the week after. It's amazing, ready to be grassed over. So big shout out to the RHS for their logistics too. It was good. But Dan, enough of me for a change. What have you been up to? (laughs) Well, I mean, it was an amazing stand, wasn't it? And incredible to think it all got taken down so quickly after all of that hard work. But we'll look forward to seeing it at Hampton Court. I have been waiting for the weather to warm up for what seems like an eternity. Here on the (laughs) east coast of England, it's been a good 10 degrees cooler than in the west and even cooler than you down in Sussex by about five or six degrees. The wind has been from the northeast. It's been incessant and everybody on this coast has been grumbling about it. So I'm looking forward to this coming weekend when there is a promise of some stiller and more humid weather. So our patients did finally run out last weekend because we had plants everywhere, plants in the greenhouse, plants hardening off outside and so we just went ahead and planted out our tomatoes, dahlias and the courgettes on the allotment. It is rammed full of plants now. There's no room for anything else, so I have no idea where we're going to squeeze in all the other plants that we've got coming on. (laughs) And of course, you know, every gardener grows more plants than they've got space for, so we're definitely victims of that. 
May is my favourite month under normal circumstances and I did two really lovely plant fairs in the West Country, one in Bath and one near Swindon and then after Chelsea I had a few days off to take my friend from Australia around some of the finest gardens in Kent. It's really hard to switch off sometimes but so good to go and see what other people are up to it's the only way you can really get inspired and i have to say i was blown away by sissinghurst this time given the time of year it looks absolutely incredible the cottage garden was full of oranges and yellows it's quite a hard thing to do in this sort of in-betweeny time and everything was sort of frothing and foaming with beautiful flowers so I really enjoyed Sissinghurst and we also went to Doddington Place which is a less well-known garden but I got my fix of azaleas and rhododendrons there which as you know I love so that was wonderful too. Oh, very good, Dan. I think I saw your photos of Sissinghurst. It did look spectacular. But you're right, the wind, the northeasterly, although you say we've been a few degrees warmer, it has been freezing here, particularly early morning and early evening. But also the wind dries out all the beds. So that's been a real challenge. And I must admit that I garden on heavy clay and it's cracking already and it looks as if we're in drought conditions and I am dreading that word drought so fingers crossed (laughs) fingers crossed it does actually warm up and the weather people have actually got it right this weekend I hope so it really has been the most testing nine or ten months for gardeners that I can remember I think so all of the predictability of our weather seems to be totally out of the window Yeah, yes. Well, let's crack on. So every episode, we discuss a hot topic. And this time, it's going to be something that's bugging us, pun intended. It's seasonal pests and bugs. We have had so many comments and feedback, mainly good, (laughs) from you after discussing the box moth caterpillar, that it made us realise how helpful it is to share a problem and recommend solutions. So we're only going to mention seasonal ones in this episode because the topic is quite large. So I mean by that black fly, not rodents or birds. Talking of which, though, Dan, do you have a ratty rodent update for us now you've embraced its presence because it, you discovered that it loved eating slugs and snails, didn't you? Yes, well, Mr Rat is no more as far as we can tell. And although he wasn't entirely welcome... His appetite for consuming slugs and snails was highly appreciated. My hostas have never looked better. They haven't got a single nibble out of them. And having spotted your box moth caterpillars, I've now started to see them everywhere in lots of people's gardens. So I feel like the bringer of bad news because all I'm doing is telling people they've got a problem. (laughs) What's the latest on your infestation? Is it getting any better? No, so thanks to you, Dan. We are really on top of it. It's good. I mean, I keep finding little patches and I think, gosh, have we sprayed, haven't we? And I go back in and there's no activity. But I too have become the bringer of bad news locally. So I went to see a neighbour yesterday delivering some onions for our local competition. (laughs) To my horror, I saw his whole box hedge full of the caterpillars and he was very confident that he had blight so I had to sort of delve in and pull out one of the luminous green beasts and show him it's actually caterpillar so the poor chap has gone away for two weeks to France and I kind of sort of slightly jokingly said you may not come back to a hedge but anyway I recommended the Zentari product and hopefully when he's back he can deal with it but I usually shy away from anything that can cause harm 
to another being. But I must admit, I'm hardened now and I do set mouse traps, as you know, in the greenhouse. It is definitely a case of my seedling babies or a hungry mouse. I have a large garden and I try to let nature live uninterrupted. But when it comes to the veg patch, I am way more precious. I throw snails over the hedge or into the open for the birds to find and I use horticultural soap or diluted washing up liquid to remove bugs. It does work but you have to have quite a bit of patience to actually do that. Yes I've seen lots of recipes popping up here and there for garlic wash to protect plants from slugs and snails and I must have a go at making some although Apparently it's best concocted on a little stove outdoors for obvious reasons. I think it's a little bit stinky. So <laughs> so shall we start our tour of the bugs, our bug parade maybe, with our slimy foes, the slugs and snails? Yes, yes. So slugs and snails, I don't know whether everybody embraces them or eradicates them, but I'm including them here because we've had such an unusual wet April and beginning of May that they've been very high in numbers and certainly here I don't usually have so much of a problem. I do in my little box hedges that surrounds the two main beds in the vegetable garden but everything else pretty much gets on with it but not this year. So as I've just said I deal with them by picking them off when I see them and if I don't throw them over the hedge I leave them in the middle of the lawn because that's quite good for the birds to come and take them. But the other thing I've been doing is that I I bought from Dan your lovely wool pellets and you're quite right after watering the pot I put them round the base of the plant. It does look as if someone spilt porridge all over the soil of my pot but they have worked a treat. So the peppers that I put in have not been munched and little tender seedlings so that's a really good tip. You know, as I just said, I know that where they hide. So if you've got any dark, damp places, it's best not to plant some tender seedlings nearby. You can deal with slugs and snails by putting an upturned pot or somewhere for them to gravitate to because they love dark, shady, damp places. And then in the greenhouse, I've had an issue when it was so wet. So I would check every night under the benching because I would find they would hide on the underneath of pots or just again in the dark under the benching. And I would pick them off and then chuck them outside so that's kind of how I've dealt with it and also I use some eggshells which also have been quite good but the eggshells have to be in quite large jagged pieces you can't crumble them too much because if it's too fine the slugs and snails will quite happily slither over them but if they're in quite big chunks it's more difficult it's more of an obstacle course for them to get over <laughs> so so that's how I have been dealing with them we rub along together but I have been more alert when it's been so wet what about you how do you cope with them Well, having a very small urban garden means we're surrounded by walls and often they're covered with things like ivy and other climbers. And as you say, the snails and snugs absolutely love living in there. So it's the same for me. I normally have a night patrol and I go out and pick them up. And sometimes if I'm feeling charitable, I take them down to the seafront in a bucket and let them roam along the clifftop. But of course, this year I've been fairly clear of them. I think... When you say rubbing along, I think that is quite important because it is about achieving a balance. I think total eradication of any insect or pest is highly unlikely to be achieved. So I'm going to tackle one of the vegetable gardener's greatest challenges, and that's the cabbage white butterfly. The nuisance isn't really caused by the pretty white butterflies themselves that actually look quite attractive flitting around your garden, but it's their caterpillars who are out to savour our savoys and crunch on our collies. 
The females lay their eggs on the underside of leaves and once they've hatched, the caterpillars will munch everything in their way. And like the box moth caterpillars, they are unrelenting. So they don't leave a bit. They literally will skeletonize leaves or just completely eat every single bit of them. The telltale signs are really holes in the leaves and around the edges of the leaves and seeing the butterflies flying around. They tend to be white, but they can sometimes be a little bit off-white as well. And they have little black spots on their wings. There are lots of ways to control them and you don't need to use chemicals to do it. So the best thing to use is some very fine mesh or netting. And you can actually now get some that isn't made out of plastic. So you can get some plant-based netting if you don't want to have plastic in your garden. And that literally stops the butterflies from getting access to the leaves and laying their eggs on them. If you have a very small garden, and this definitely counts for me, you know, manual physical intervention and picking off the caterpillars is probably the easiest and the most sustainable way to go about things but if you've got a bigger garden that's obviously a bit trickier. There are biological controls you can get so there's a very small parasitic wasp but when I say that you know don't imagine the sort of wasps that we hate buzzing around us at the pub. These there are lots of different kinds of wasps and these are not an offensive one but these will parasitize the caterpillar we won't go into too much detail because it's quite gruesome. They do rid your garden of the caterpillars. Of course, there are chemicals you can use and that is entirely up to you if you choose to use them. But it's really important that you follow the instructions and use them as infrequently and as carefully as possible. You definitely don't want to overspray and choose a windy day when the spray might go elsewhere and kill things that you don't want it to. Crop rotation, of course, was discovered hundreds of years ago and remains a very good way of preventing lots of different pests and diseases in your vegetable garden. So try not to grow the same things in the same place. But as an allotment owner, that's easier said than done because even if I am very good at crop rotation and try and you know, not have things like blight or caterpillars, then they can very easily come in from a neighbouring plot. So in a way, that's a little bit futile. But if you're in glorious isolation, a little bit more like you are, Julia, then it's a bit easier to control incoming pests from other gardens. And, you know, the, the whole using dilute washing up liquid, that's that can work for lots of different pests. Although, I follow a very interesting plant scientist whose name has just escaped me, but he says that's actually very bad for the leaves of the plants, as it would your hands. It strips a lot of the essential oils and the coatings off the leaves of the plant. So spraying regularly with washing up liquid isn't actually to be recommended, but in an emergency situation, if you really want to get rid of some aphids or some caterpillars, you can definitely give that a go. So, Julia, mm. I had cabbages. You've got something much more exotic to talk about. In fact, two more exotic pests to talk about. <laughs> I have. Exotic's the word. I was going to say that the main pest control for the cabbage white is just don't grow any brassicas. <laughs> it's practically unhelpful <laughs> to all of you. But... <laughs> Very unhelpful, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
sorry about that. Anyway, yes. Yeah, so I, yes, of course I've got something exotic. No, joking. Yeah, so I have a lemon tree and I'm often asked on social media about how to treat lemons, particularly when they get invaded by something which they are mainly susceptible to. So I'm going to talk about scale insects, which is not something I was aware of until last year. And actually, they invaded quietly, secretly, to the point of no extinction of my really lovely lemon tree that was the picture of health the year before and laden with lemons. So what they did is they caused the leaves to turn yellow by feeding off the sap. And it's such a kind of slow process and you can't see them because they're very well camouflaged. They are very hard to spot. So they hide on the underside, mostly, of the leaves. They are small, oval thin bumps I guess is the best way to describe it and even if you run your thumb or finger along underneath expecting to bump into an insect they're difficult to feel so they are actually very clever nature is clever and they vary in colour from pale brown to black which are easy to spot and even white but mine were a very pale moly brown colour so they kind of blended in beautifully with the leaves so to begin with I didn't really think I had an issue. I just thought maybe I'd not been feeding the lemon properly or watering it, etc., etc. But then I identified that I did have scale. And so when the leaves turn yellowy and then fall off, that then suddenly the pace quickens and I was left with just a trunk. It literally all the leaves just kept dropping off. And it was just I don't know, it was upsetting. And it's very easy to then think, well, that's it, the tree is dead. But I was very patient, because I have learned to be very patient. So I kept it, I nurtured it, I bought some horticultural soap, which is an extraordinary thing. It's not a bar of soap, but it comes out, it's completely transparent, and it comes out like a big sort of lump of jelly out of its tub. And you very carefully get a cloth and you wash it all over each leaf. And I know that sounds time consuming, and it is but citrus leaves are quite large, so it was easier to do. And I patiently did that and I did it twice and it actually worked. And I have, touch wood, eradicated for now the scale insect and the tree has come back and I can report it has three flowers. I know it's only three, but I know that I'm gonna win and next year I'll have lemons. So, so that's brilliant. I bought the horticulture soap from a specialist and we can leave that in the show notes but I think you can probably buy it from garden centres but it was brilliant and then the other thing is that red spider mite can also invade but Dan's going to come on to that later but that's the other problem so if you have one insect on citrus it weakens the plant which means that then it's open to other pests coming in because they can tell and they know and they can also invade so you have to be on it with citrus and the best thing I find is that the insects tend to move in more when the citrus is housed in the greenhouse during winter and early spring as soon as I get it outside a lot is solved it's colder at night the insects don't love that warm temperature quite so much and they can't breathe so well so I do find that putting your citrus outside does also help the summer months should hopefully be pest free. I was going to say that you've picked up on one of my least favourite pests I think scale insects are an absolute nuisance I get them on my ferns indoors I get them on the stems of various different plants and as you say you can't see them a telltale sign, I would say, is that you get this sort of stickiness that sometimes appears on leaves that are below where they are. And that's where they're milking the sweet sap out of the plants and some of it is going elsewhere. But 
that is a little bit of a sign. But as you say, they're very tricky to see. They're really hard to get rid of. I have discovered this miracle product. I'm not being paid to mention it, but it's called, I think it's called SB Plant Invigorator. And it is a spray. It's a little bit pricey, but I haven't managed to find anything that would get rid of scale insects and woolly aphids, and this does. It, it forms some sort of membrane or coating on the insect, the pest, and that stops them from, I don't know, from breathing or growing or whatever it is, but it basically inhibits them. And I found that works incredibly well. So as with anything, because probably because I haven't used it before, the pests haven't become immune to its powers. So that might be one to look out for as well. Yeah, that's a good tip, Dan. Thank you. And I'm also battling with another exotic pest, which is the asparagus beetle. Now, this is also new to me. And they've suddenly appeared on my spears that I'm going out thinking, oh, great, they're ready. How exciting is that? Almost overnight. They look harmless, but they will eat the tips of the spears and they lay eggs a bit like the cabbage white butterfly up and down the stem and they are teeny tiny they're black to begin with you think what's that little speck on the spear but there are loads of them and we can wash them off but they're tricky to wash off because you don't want to eat them um but the beetles look a little bit like um elongated ladybirds they're quite strange they've got little spots on either side of their backs and they're black so and they're probably about twice the length of a ladybird and they look fairly innocuous to begin with, but goodness me, they can cause a lot of destruction. The thing about them is that once you've got them, I think they are pretty tricky to get rid of because they can overwinter in the soil. So they drop off. Um, they're quite cunning. So you go to get them and they'll literally disappear pretty much in front of you. I think they drop down into the soil. So I've been picking off the ones that I can get and dropping them in soapy water, which kills them. Another way I've been trying to do it is go out before the spears are a perfect size to pick. So when they're quite young, so shorter, so I've been snapping them off and bringing them in before the beetle has had a chance to find that next spear. That has started working recently in the last week or so for me. Any ones that I've missed that are too far gone, I mean, they look as if the spears are almost flowering. I mean, they literally get that tip and open them all up and they look rather frilly on the top. So if you've got an asparagus spear that looks frilly, don't go near it, we'll chop it off and dispose of it. On in the bonfire, if you've got a bonfire, if you're allowed to have them or somewhere else, but definitely nowhere near your compost. And the other way to help is to keep the area weed free. Well, with asparagus, you're meant to have your whole bed clear of weeds anyway, which is how they grow so well. So that's fine. But when you finish picking your spears, you would normally allow your asparagus tips to grow into asparagus fern, which creates a really dense jungle area, which is presumably where the asparagus beetles would like to hide and would live undisturbed and then hide in the soil for next year. So that's a real issue. So I don't know if anyone has come across this and has a solution. I, for one, would love to hear how you deal with them because, as I've said, they're quite new to me and they're horrid. And actually, I would say so far they've ruined half my crop of asparagus spears and I'm now checking everyone with a fine tooth comb because I don't want to find I've eaten something hidden in the tip. <laughs> It's very distressing, isn't it? I mean, we all put so much work into our gardens and I think that's half of the problem, you know, to see all of our months and months of work go down the pan, whether it's a 
whether it's a cabbage white caterpillar or a box moth or whatever, it, that is where the run it really is to see yeah. things so easily and quickly undone. And I have no experience of asparagus beetles. They sound a little bit like a lily beetle in their habit of dropping to the ground and sort of hiding. Um, these things are very quick to cause damage, particularly when you've got a quantity of something that they can sort of work their way through. So I wish you lots of luck and hopefully someone is going to comment on the episode and tell us what the miracle cure is for asparagus beetles. So I have got another tricksy one, very much smaller than the asparagus beetle and quite destructive which is the red spider mite. And the reason we've included those in our kind of list of now pests is because they prosper when it is dry and warm. And of course, it's been very dry for the last few weeks and it's now suddenly starting to warm up. Red spider mites are particularly prevalent, I have to say, in greenhouses and indoor plants. So they don't like cool weather and they don't like good ventilation. It's where you've got that sort of stagnant, warm, dry air, which we often have indoors when they proliferate. Again, a little bit like what you were talking about earlier with the scale insects, it's quite difficult to know that you've got a problem until it's gone a long way with a red spider mite. So they are very tiny, invisible to the eye, and they cause a sort of mottling of leaves that looks a little bit like they're dusty perhaps or someone's sprinkled mustard powder over them. They start to look look dry, a little bit sort of wizened and when they're very well progressed you will, if you look very closely, you will see the finest little webs around the edges of the leaves or under the leaves, not like your normal spider's web, they're really, really sort of gossamer thin, but that is a telltale sign that you have red spider mites. And they will take over an entire plant, they will cause the leaves to go dry and crisp and eventually drop off. And that can kill the plant, but in most cases, I tend to find that it will cause the leaves to drop. And then if you can change the conditions that the plant is in, so if you can provide a bit more humidity and provide some better ventilation, most plants will grow back. But you then have to just be wary of a reinfestation of these little spider mites. So the best control is really is to avoid those very dry conditions. House plants, of course, many of them, apart from the most tropical ones, can go outside probably from this weekend, probably from now, because the weather is just about warm enough for them at night for the next few months. And that will help you to avoid getting something like mm. a red spider mite. The horticultural soap that you mentioned earlier, that is something that you can use, but you know, it involves a lot of sort of washing of the leaves. It's quite a fiddly job to do. Yeah. Again, yeah. you can try that SB plant invigorator. I find that it works on everything. And if you've not used it before, it's probably going to work for you. There is a chance that the pests can get accustomed to it. In a greenhouse as well, for many reasons, it's good practice at this time of year to damp down the paths. So if you've not done that before, that is literally watering the paths. 
And what that does is create a sort of humidity as the water evaporates off the paving slabs or whatever surface you've got in there that will fill the air with moisture and that particular pest won't like it. Unfortunately, there are other pests that do like humidity, so you will get rid of one, but you might encourage <laughs> others. Ventilation is also really important in a greenhouse or for house plants. So open your windows if you can, open the greenhouse door, and that will help. But it is a pesky one and hard to spot in the early days. Yeah, so I always suffer every year. It's a perennial problem with the red spider mite in the greenhouse, and I water the path. Um, I, you know, I can see them running along the bench. It, I always open everything, the windows, the door. They still take hold when it's, and it is when it's really hot. So I'm sure I'll be seeing them this week at some point. But you're right, <laughs> all those things do help. And again, it's a managing issue, isn't it? Yeah. But I discovered recently that you can buy sachets, which actually house a predatory mite, which might another pun it's going to be the pun episode <laughs> actually help get rid of them and if i can get this pronunciation correct the predatory mite is called ambulicius andersoni or andersoni and it's a natural thrip insect and they will eat and feed off the red spider mites so i've got a sachet hanging up in the greenhouse and i will take note to see if it makes any difference to the numbers of the red spider mite but it seemed like a very good alternative and quite good to have a backup as well as watering the floor yes definitely worth a go i mean i want to go back to something you said back when you're talking about citrus which is at which is my philosophy really which is healthy plants do not get pests and diseases and if they do get yeah. them then they have a much better chance of survival. So my philosophy is always to feed plants, make sure they're well potted on, make sure that they're growing strongly because it's like a human being. If you're fit and well, you can shake off everything that life throws at you and it's the same with plants. If plants are under any form of stress, so if they've not been watered enough or they don't have enough space for their roots or they're too shaded, then they become weak. And then with that, they become susceptible to pests and diseases. So I've always felt that the best thing to do is just make sure that they're really well grown and then they'll hopefully survive even the worst attacks. And also you have to be a little bit patient, as you said, with your leaf drop, that you know plants will come back, plants inherently want to live. So if you can remove the pest and manage it, then many plants will bounce back again after an attack. I can see everybody peering at their plants, looking for those little scaly <laughs> bumps on there that you were talking about. So don't have nightmares about it because most gardeners and gardens can get along with a balance of things and that's just how life works you know we are yeah, after down. all gardeners not farmers so none of us need to rely on our gardens for commercial income so if if the worst happens it doesn't matter too much now every episode julia enlightens us with a seasonal project she's come up with and i highlight a product from my online garden shop so, Julia, what clever trick do you have in mind for us to do this time? Well, I suppose it could be called a clever trick. It's a trick that is put on a stick. <laughs> Sustainable cane toppers is my project. 
And it might not be something you've considered in your garden that you need, but let me tell you, you do. So speaking from experience, I was happy pulling some, or pulling off broad beans in my harvest a couple of years ago. And as usual, I'm always in a bit of a hurry. So I'd got a full colander bowl. I dived back in for the extra few that I saw and what happened but the stick cane support went straight into my eye and it was a little trip to Brighton Eye Hospital and I got away lightly I had only scratched the cornea so it was a surface scratch but you can and people do do quite a lot of harm and so it made me get my garden and myself into check actually so I've since then I've been putting on cane toppers anyway the idea that I've had is to save corks from wine bottles. Cork corks, not the new plastic corks that some wine bottles have. I make a little hole in the middle of them and then I pop them on top of the bamboo canes and it's a thrifty, I know you wouldn't expect anything less, idea from Parker's <laughs> Patch. And actually it works brilliantly because once they're on the stick they stay very firm, they survive the summer and then you can pick them off at the end of the season and use them as fire lighters. So there's definitely no waste involved. And the way I do it is that I use a screwdriver. I've got a little tiny handy screwdriver that I keep in my greenhouse, in my little pot of tools. And I just sort of turn it round backwards and forwards and it makes a nice little sort of little hole. And it will obviously depend on the size of your canes or your sticks that you want to put a cane topper on. Mine are not that big because I love using sticks so they've got quite a pointy edge and so it's easy to position the, the cork. But if you have a slightly larger stick or cane then you can use a drill and you can just put a different, a small auger drill bit on the end and you can just make a small hole. So you can do it two ways or you could possibly use a small sharp pair of scissors and keep the scissor blades closed but just twist that back and forth as well making a hollow in the middle of the cork. They're quite resilient so you're not really going to crack or break a cork. You might do that if perhaps you're not quite in the middle of your cork so if you go too close to the edge it's going to crack under pressure but hopefully most of you will have a steady supply of corks in your home. Now my family will be laughing to themselves. <laughs> we certainly do here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, those of you who know me will know that I am pretty much nitty total, sadly. But anyway, so I actually have very lovely friends who own our local pub. And before the flower show, Chelsea Flower Show, I trotted off down there and I asked if they had some spare corks, which they saved loads of them. And they very kindly gave me lots of theirs. So I have got a summer's worth a bag of corks and some appeared on canes at the flower show. You may or may not have seen that. But of course, you don't have to use corks if you don't want to. You could use other redundant, recycled, upcycled household items. So ping pong balls make quite good cane toppers. Not quite as attractive as a cork. Tennis balls, upturned small terracotta pots. The other thing I do is that I collect empty snail shells. So from my pile that I've thrown in the middle of the lawn, I often find there's an empty snail shell intact and they make really attractive cane toppers. So if anyone comes around to my garden, you will identify <laughs> upturned snails and corks. <laughs> there's a good mix going on. And I think they're so lovely. I even photograph them sometimes. So that's how I cope with it. But I cannot stress enough how important it is to protect yourself when in the garden. And it's a silly mistake to make, but it's very easy to do. 
So that's my thrifty project, Dan. Well, I think it's a great one because, as you say, cane and stick-related accidents, I think they're in the top 10 causes of accidents in the garden with lawnmowers coming first, but they're still up there. And I have had some pretty unpleasant scrapes with garden canes, including falling into a border and being impaled on four... (laughs) canes which fortunately went up my sides and over my shoulders but they didn't half leave they left some very nasty cut I shouldn't laugh at your mishap (laughs) those cane toppers would have done the treat so do you think a what's better a champagne or prosecco cork or a normal wine cork what do you think you're asking the wrong person but I do actually know the answer a champagne is good because they're slightly bigger so, and that yes. you know they're easier to make the whole okay. but it doesn't really matter both work well <laughs> well there's no shortage of those in our house so I shall definitely be giving that one a go and I am very guilty of not putting toppers on my cane so I shall get on with that now for my product of the week and I thought following on from our little chat about pests I would talk about a ladybird tower which I've got here so hopefully Julia can see it even if everyone else uh, can't so it is it's like a little fairy tale or like a very tall house or a fairy tale castle which is made out of a piece of birch log And it has got some little red ladybirds stuck on the outside, which are more for decoration. I don't think they have any other purpose other than that. But what's really clever about this is that the log has been hollowed out inside. And there are holes that are at an upwards angle that go in to the core of the log, which is filled with straw. Because as anybody knows that has old-fashioned windows, ladybirds love to tuck themselves away somewhere warm in the winter, often around window frames. But this is very similar. They just crawl inside and there's a lovely warm, dry core of straw in the middle and that that keeps them nice and cosy in wet weather or cold weather. And it's got a spike which you can unscrew from the back and you can pop it into the bottom here. And I say mm-hmm. here, but Julia can see. I and, can see. I'm nodding, um, yes. <laughs> and in the, you can spike it in the ground. And I would really suggest that if you have a ladybird tower or you want to create your own, then the best place to put it is next to a plant that is going to be a source of food. So something that is prone to getting something like green fly or black fly because the ladybirds will naturally gravitate towards that as a food source they'll do you a favor because well it's actually not the ladybird the little red ladybird that we know and love that does the eating of the aphids it's actually the larvae of the ladybird which is a curious little black insect with sort of yellowy spots it looks a lot more sinister than it actually is so it's well worth knowing what one looks like in case you mistake it for a pest but that will do the chomping away so I think it's just a really nice it's a nice little bit of garden ornament but also with a use it looks very pretty I like to have it in amongst my flowers on the allotment and I see the ladybirds going in and out of it and they seem very happy with their little extra home very useful on our allotment plot as well which is very open and exposed it doesn't have many places for insects to shelter so this does 
do that extra little bit. Oh, it's absolutely charming, Dan. It's like a very magical, elongated birdhouse with smaller holes, in a way, if that's a way of describing it. It's charming. Yes. <laughs> I'll use <laughs> that for the online description. <laughs> <laughs> Julia says nobody will buy it. But it actually would make a lovely gift, wouldn't it? And it's fantastic. Yes, a nice Father's Day gift. So, every episode, I choose my pick of the bunch while Julia shares her top of the crops. At this time of year, we're both really spoiled for choice. So what scrumptious crop are you going to tempt us with this week, Julia? Well, Dan, salad is my chosen crop. Um, They are easier to grow than you think. And this year, particularly, if you grow your own, it'll avoid any disappointment if the supermarkets still suffer their supply issues that we have been seeing over the last few months. And June heralds the beginning of salad days for me. And my first lot we are already tucking into. And there's something very pleasing about walking outside early in the morning, opening up the greenhouse and seeing outside and in the greenhouse, my salads looking frilly and actually quite glorious. So I like to sow everything from seed, as you know, and I would recommend that salad is very easy to grow from seed. And I'm using the word salad, but I'm including cut and come again leaves, mixed salad and also lettuces, which I'll come on to and explain why I'm including them in. And I use lengths of guttering to start them off in. You can use seed trays, you can use pots, you can pretty much scatter salad seed, lettuce seed in anything because there are thousands of seeds in the seed packet and they are very easy to germinate and quick to germinate now it's warmed up. You can sow them in a greenhouse, you can sow them outside. Now, if the weathermen are right at the end of the month, it's going to be warmer, depending on where you live. But just if it's warmish and becoming summer-like, you can do this all outside. And then when my seedlings come through, so if it's warm, it'll take a couple of days for them to germinate. Then I let them to get big enough to handle and then I will very quickly plant them directly outside or from their container. So I will move them on quite quickly. Once salads and lettuce get enough room for a root to grow they explode and grow very fast it's quite surprising how it makes a big difference for their roots to have the space and they will treble overnight in size it's brilliant so I pop them into the beds I always water in my seedlings I'm not a great big waterer of things that are in the vegetable patch but with the seedling they always need watering in for the first few days up to a week And then I pop them into all sorts of places. So Dan mentioned earlier that he's going to have to squeeze things in. Well, I am the queen of squeeze because I can fit a lettuce in anywhere. They can go in empty pots. They can go around the base of tomatoes in a grow bag. They can go in pretty rows. They can edge. I've had them as edging before in a whole great line. It's like a hedge of lettuce. They they look fantastic. They don't need masses of space to grow. So you can put them in containers and particularly the cut and come again mixes that you can buy these days will thrive in shallow containers with drainage holes. And you can just keep these outside your back door or by your kitchen door as long as you water them regularly, you've got a steady supply of leaves you can harvest every other night. It's brilliant. So during the summer months, as I said, they will be ready to eat every four to six weeks. And so I also re-sow every four to six weeks so that I have a steady supply. It's called successional sowing. They need little maintenance other than the slug and snail watch. And to be honest, when they get bigger, 
it's okay for those slugs and snails to have a few of the outside leaves because the salads I have at the moment are so kind of bigger than my head. They're quite incredible. So there's enough for all of us to feed off. I choose a variety of salads that I grow here because I choose them for their colour, their taste, spiciness. Yes, lettuces have spice, crunch and the ability to cut and come again. The thing about seed sowing is that I have a lot of choice, but if you're short on time, then there's nothing wrong with buying plug plants. There is still variety of choice, but you know it's not quite as big as the seed packets, but you can quite happily buy plug plants. They're very good, they're brilliant. It, they just cost a bit more, but please don't feel bad about doing that because they are good. My favorite varieties to grow are the cut and come again mixes. It's when you basically harvest the young leaves up to a, usually about four times, and then you compost the whole lot, soil and all, and then start again with fresh compost and new seeds. That's really good and you get a lot of leaves there. Keep the successional supply going on those, which is brilliant. And the other thing is that I do also grow whole lettuces, but I treat them slightly differently. So I never pull up the whole lettuce. I always slice off the crown of the lettuce, leaving the root intact. And within three weeks, that root is sent up baby versions of the variety that I'm growing. And it means I haven't got an extra space to weed and it's still working quite hard for me. So I love doing all of that. I suppose you could call that a cut and come again lettuce, but it's good, it works really well. So the varieties that I grow, so cut and come again mixes, Black Seeded Simpson is a really good lettuce to grow. Little Gem, there's a variety called Delight that the RHS recommend, is fun and easy to grow and doesn't take up too much space. There's one called Cocard, which is an arrowhead lettuce. It's green, but it's slightly tinged with red. It's very attractive and looks nice outside. And that grows either side of the summer season, so spring and autumn. It's pretty hardy. My top favourite is a variety called Salad Bowl, which comes in a red or a green variety. Again, I noticed the RHS recommend that. I can see why it's a fab, easy, foolproof lettuce to grow and tastes good. Lolo Rosso looks great. It's the red frilly lettuce. I find it doesn't have that much of a taste and the leaves can be a bit tough, but it looks fantastic. It's a bit like having masses of frilly liquors in your garden. Butterhead is a really good one to grow and that likes the cooler months too. That's just a plain closed lettuce, like an old fashioned lettuce, I guess I'd call that and then winter density for cooler months. And then I include wild rocket because I think rocket is an essential salad leaf. It's prolific, it's hard to get wrong. Once you've got it, it's always there. But I would only ever grow the wild variety, not the normal rocket because normal rocket can be stripped by a little beetle that comes in usually around July. So wild rocket is much hardier, it's much spicier and the pests don't like it so they leave it which is great. And then of course there are loads of other leaves you can grow which are included in a salad bracket group because you can have pea shoots that you can grow, which is pea seeds grown for their shoots. You can grow them en masse. Young nasturtium leaves are delicious and spicy. Mizuna, baby chard can be picked and used. Beetroot leaves if they're young. Spinach leaves picked young is a great salad leaf. 
and you could even include pak choy in this as well and of course microgreens although the microgreens i save for the cooler months when there's not much else going on outside because there's plenty of greenery in my garden so that's my top of the crops actually dan i think salad is a um, underrated but should be much more used vegetable Yes, I completely agree. And, you know, you look at all those bags of very sad salad leaves in the supermarket and you just think, you know, it's actually a lot of money you're paying for a few leaves and yet so, so easy to grow yourself. And, of course, they're as fresh as a daisy when you pick them. And, as you say, you can really mix it up with the varieties you use. I have very boring little gems in at the moment and I plant those between my rows of chrysanthemums because chrysanthemums flower oh. in the autumn and they're not doing very much right now. One thing that's worth mentioning with with a lot of salad leaves is that they don't particularly want to be baked in full sun and our allotment is very very sunny so Putting them between rows of taller things like chrysanthemums gives them a little bit of shelter and it also gives them a tiny bit of shade if you're in a very open space. So that's worth doing. But some of my favourites, I grow one called Forellenschluss, which I think means something like spotted trout or something like that. But it's a spotty lettuce, a very old heritage variety which which has red spots on its leaves. It's very attractive in a salad. One little tiny tip, because you mentioned about seeds germinating well in warm weather. In the first three to four hours after sowing, lettuce seeds are really susceptible to temperature and it's best to sow lettuces in the evening because they need to be cool for the first three or four hours and then they can be warm after that. I didn't know this, but it was the same plant biologist that I was talking about earlier that I learned this from. That is a great tip, Dan. Okay, so now we're in the month of June, which is often referred to here in the UK as Flaming June. Um, I'm hoping that you, Dan, are going to talk about your pick of the bunch and that it's going to be blooming, bold and colourful. Am I right? Oh, it absolutely is, yes. So, <laughs> I, you know, it seems to be one of those years where we've seen the passing of lots of really well-known celebrities and that always makes me feel a little bit melancholy as maybe it's just as I get older I see the people that I admired and enjoyed when I was younger gradually fading away and I was inspired today by Barry Humphreys who of course was the genius behind Zay Medner Everidge who is one of my all-time favourite characters. I'm sure you can easily work out why, but her signature flower was the gladiolus, or gladi, and she took great delight, of course, in hurling them out to her admirers in the crowd. (laughs) And I think gladioli, probably along with chrysanthemums and dahlias, is one of those flowers that has become slightly overlooked because it is such a brazen bold flower. I think what probably goes against gladioli and what's given them a poor reputation is that they can be quite stiff and starchy looking so particularly the hybrids that were around in the 1770s and 80s they were very you know they were bred for their great big blooms and to be very statuesque and probably a lot of them were bred for cutting rather than for planting in the garden and so we think of them as not very easy to use in our gardens but that's actually 
not the case because there are thousands of different varieties of gladioli and they do vary between the great big towering six foot ones that you would see in a hotel lobby arrangement right through to very delicate ones and here in Broadstairs which is by the coast gardens are absolutely rammed with gladiolus byzantinus at the moment which is a beautiful dark magenta gladioli that obviously judging by the name is not from these parts but was bought to the UK and is naturalised in places like this and also in Cornwall you'll see it in the hedgerows Cornwall and Devon it's naturalised there and it's a really good complement to the foxglove because you've got the sort of big candy pink foxgloves and then the magenta gladioli so and that is a much more delicate thing also we were talking the other day weren't we about gladiolus uriale yes let's get it yeah, right which one. the abyssinian uh, gladiolus that used to be called acidanthera which has the most exquisite perfume and again very very delicate flowers not at all like the gladioli that you'd buy in the supermarket so what I'm saying, I suppose, is that we all need to sort of get over our gladioli phobia because there is a lot more to them and they deserve a second look. They grow from corms. The corms are just like an oversized crocus, so they have a sort of netty case around the outside. And like many bulbs, they hail from warmer regions than the UK. And so they like to have a warm, fertile and well-drained soil. They do not like to be soggy by and large. Some gladioli are hardy and other ones are not, so it's well worth checking that out. Certainly Byzantinus, the one that grows around here, is very hardy, but in a wetter soil it might not be. So like a dahlia, you can make that choice in the autumn about whether to lift them and store them over winter or leave them in the ground. We do not lift them here because even the non-hardy ones are perfectly okay here and actually they clump up really quickly after three to five years you will need to lift them purely because they'll make such a big dense clump that they'll start to stop flowering because they're too close together it's the most normal way to buy gladioli is to buy some corns from mail order or from the garden centre. But if you're really, really patient, nerdy, or you want to breed your own, you can sow seeds or you can use the little cormlets that come off every season to grow some more. And the little cormlets will probably produce a flowering plant in two to three years, while the seeds might take a little bit longer. But it's something you can have a go at if you've got the time and patience. You should plant gladioli about 10 to 15 centimetres deep. Here we find that they sort of heave themselves out of the soil over time because every time a new bulb forms, it forms on top of the old one. So they sort of climb out of the soil a little bit and occasionally we find them coming right up to the surface. So plant them fairly deep and hopefully that won't happen. The big ones do need some support, so if you've got them in a border with other things, then use some wire hoops or something to just support the stems. You get this fan-like production of sword-shaped leaves, a bit like an iris, like a bearded iris that comes up through the ground. 
and then in July or August you will notice a spike, a very statuesque spike coming up through the middle of the leaves and that will give you your flowers. Of course they are absolutely brilliant cut flowers and if you're going to cut gladioli you should pick them just as the bottom two flowers are starting to show some colour and when you bring them in and put them in the vase they will continue to produce flowers. If you want to keep the intense colours though it's important that they're in a light place because they do fade a little bit if they haven't got plenty of light to keep them going. But of course I think the thing that I would like to impress on people is that they aren't just for cutting, they are really great garden plants. They produce some structure when everything else is very frothy. So they look great with grasses because they have that sort of gauzy look and then you've got a very dramatic flower coming up. They're very good alongside things like alliums and they work well in the prairie style garden. Again, where you've got lots of plants that are swaying in the breeze, it gives a slightly more structural statement. And the smaller ones, like Nanum and the Byzantinus, they will work very well in a meadow sort of situation. So you can pop some of those, providing it's not a damp meadow, you can pop some of those in and it will give you some bright colour amongst the grasses later on. You just have to be careful not to mow them off once they've finished flowering. Gladiola are great flowers for pollinators so they're not double. I hesitate to say there are no double gladioli, there probably are but I would steer well clear if I were you, it sounds horrible. But they are very popular with bees and you will see lots of bees, moths and kind wasps going and visiting them and they are very very cheap and easy to grow so this isn't a plant where it's they're like tulips you know if they don't come back you haven't lost a great deal but they're definitely worth the trouble. Last footnote is of course like so many plants that we grow in the garden they are toxic if you eat them that is not to say don't grow them, it's just to be aware of, but actually lots and lots of plants we grow in our garden are a little bit toxic. The trick is, yes, don't nibble on them. The snugs <laughs> and snails are welcome, but do just steer well clear. I think what I'll do is I will put my favourites in the show notes, but I've got a few favourite varieties, so if you want to know more about what they are, I will put them in the show notes. And hopefully I have changed your mind if you weren't already in love with them as Dame Edna was. Well, I love them. I've embraced them in the last few years. And the good thing about them is that you can still sow them now, can't you? So if you plant the corms now, you will actually have flowers in early September, which is fantastic. Because, you know, other than dahlias and maybe ten and zinnias, you need a lot of colour in, in September going through to October. So that's good. Yeah. I have them as cut flowers and I just love having just one colour in a vase but yeah I think they're really beautiful they're very architectural aren't they? Yes and I do choose my gladioli according to my decor because I know I'm going to pick them so I always <laughs> choose ones that I think will look good indoors. So we round off every episode with a rundown of the jobs you can be doing in your garden over the next fortnight and this time it's Julia's turn to keep us all on the straight and narrow. I'll do my best. So the first job is you need to add straw, if you haven't already, around the base of your strawberry plants. So the forming fruit needs to be lifted off the ground so that there'll be no mud splashback and that the slugs and snails can't attack them. It's more difficult if they're on a bed of straw. 
you need to make sure your broad beans are tied in and pinch out any growing tips and when you do pinch out the growing tips they are edible and you can steam them and they have the most delicious taste of a broad bean which is very nice as an extra veg tie in tomatoes they are really beginning to shoot up now and keep your maintenance going continually remove the side shoots and start to feed once you see the flowers set plant out sweet corn squashes brassicas and leeks if you haven't already done that you can still do that throw your netting over the brassicas to keep off the cabbage whites <laughs> harvest your first early potatoes when in flower which they will start to be flowering now depending where you live in the country stake and support late flowering perennials so they don't collapse or splay out in the windy weather which we've had lots start to feed your pots hanging baskets and containers six weeks after planting up as the compost dries out very quickly and the plants have taken out all the nutrients from that first lot water trees and shrubs planted in the spring and do this at least once a week even if it rains still water them the rain does not go into the pot and don't skimp, give more water than you think is needed, one to two gallons of water for each pot. Make a late sowing of flowering annuals around Midsummer's Day. They will flourish and flower in September and October as the days get shorter, so don't forget about them. Deadhead repeat flowering roses to encourage many more flowers to form. Divide bearded irises after flowering, taking care not to bury the rhizomes. This is something you need to do every three to five years. And yeah, that's 12 tips. We could go on, couldn't we, for June? But I think they're the important We could. Ones. We had to mention the bearded irises, though, because, of course, they were everywhere at Chelsea. And I suspect they everyone were. has been rushing out to recreate <laughs> Sarah Price's garden. Somebody came dashing over to me at the plant fair I was at at the weekend saying, do you think it's a Benton? Do you think it's a Benton? And I, I don't oh, think gosh. it was, sadly. But I think it was a variety called Kent Pride, which I particularly like. But yes, mm. everyone's gone a bit crazy for them, haven't they? Yeah. So we are still busy bees, aren't we? Where are you going to be this month? Where can people find you? Well, I am going to see the Museum of Gardening in Hassocks, which I've discovered exists, and I'm going to chat with Clive, the curator and founder of this charity, and see his collection of rare and unusual garden items. So I'm looking forward to that. We actually met over a rhubarb forcer by sheer chance, but enough of that. Before that, I'm going to Water Lane Nursery in Hawkehurst in Kent to hear Joe Fairley interview Kath Kidston, who's created a new business called Cathaly, which is a scent collection based around geraniums. I'm excited about that. And Alatex are hosting an open morning on the 16th of June, 9am till 4pm at their head office, which is Torbury Farm near Petersfield. It's a good opportunity to see different greenhouses and discuss your plans if you're thinking about, or indeed in the process of having a greenhouse installed. And then on the 20th of June, Alatex have arranged a private tour of Broughton Grange Gardens, which is near Banbury, with the head gardener. It's in the afternoon, 2.30 till 5pm. There are tickets available, so you can book via the Alatex website or see the link in our show notes. And that is one not to be missed. So, Dan, where are you? What are you up to? I know that you are super busy, so tell us. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so I'm going to go backwards, leading on from Alatex's open morning on the 16th of June, and tell you that I'll be at Gilbert White's house in Selborne, which is near Petersfield and near Alatex, 
for their 30th annual Unusual Plants Fair, which is on the 17th and 18th of June, Father's Day. So I shall be there ready to equip all those who've forgotten to buy a gift with some lovely tools and bits of gardening kit for the dads and men in their lives. But before that, I shall be at the Midsummer Fair at Hull Park near Rolvenden. And that's going on until Saturday, June the 10th. And hopefully this podcast will be out before that. I'm on stand 034, which is just opposite the Blue Marquee, if you do go along. And you'll find me there either with my other half or with my former boss who's helping me out. So it should be a really lovely few days in the sunshine in the beautiful Kent countryside. Brilliant and hopefully you'll have your ladybird houses as well Dan if anyone's interested. I certainly will. Okay so that's all for this episode it's a bit longer than usual but we've had a lot to share so it just remains for me to say goodbye from me and goodbye from me. You've been listening to the Two Good Gardeners podcast with Dan Cooper and Julia Parker. Sponsored by Alatex, home of the modern Victorian greenhouse, designed in the UK for over 70 years and built worldwide. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then why not click follow on your favourite podcast platform so you don't miss out. Leaving a rating or writing a review will help us reach other gardening enthusiasts like you. We'll return here with a freshly prepared smorgasbord of delights in a fortnight. In the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram at dancoopergarden.com, at parkers underscore patch, and at twogoodgardeners, or visit our websites. You'll find the addresses in the show notes. If you've got questions for either of us, you can email them to hello at dancoopergarden.com. Until the next time, happy gardening!